Today's scripture comes from Psalm 46 in the Passion Translation. God, you're such a safe and powerful place to find refuge. You're a proven help in time of trouble, more than enough and always available whenever I need you. So we will never fear. Even if every structure of support were to crumble away, we will not fear. Even when the earth quakes and shakes, moving mountains and casting them into the sea. For the raging roar of stormy winds and crashing waves cannot erode our faith in you. Pause in his presence. God has a constantly flowing river whose sparkling streams bring joy and delight to his people. His river flows right through the city of God most high into his holy dwelling places. God is in the midst of his city, secure and never shaken. At daybreak, his help will be seen with the appearing of the dawn. When the nations are in uproar with their tottering kingdoms, God simply raises his voice, and the earth begins to disintegrate before him. Here he comes. The commander, the mighty lord of angel armies, is on our side. The God of Jacob fights for us. Pause in his presence. Everyone look. Come and see the breathtaking wonders of our God, for he brings both ruin and revival. He's the one who makes conflicts in through the, throughout the earth breaking and burning every weapon of war. Surrender your anxiety, be still, and realize that I am God. I am God above all the nations, and I am exalted throughout the whole earth. Here he stands, the commander, the mighty lord of angel armies is on our side. The God of Jacob fights for us. This is the word of the Lord. Before we get started this morning, I wanted to reference um, the scripture that Dan read just a minute ago, the little snippet of be still, know that I am God. I want us to be still for a moment. Now, I know that's so awkward. I get it. Just to be quiet, nobody's moving or saying a sound. It's awkward for me too. But sometimes we just need to take a deep breath and just be still for just a moment. And on a side note, you know how some people ask you to do that and they talk the whole time? Like, feel your breathing. And that's great. We need those too. We're really going to be silent. So I don't want you to be freaked out. I'm not going to talk. So let's take a moment and just be still. You don't have to close your eyes, but if you need to, do. But let's just take a moment and be still and know that God is God. God, we are thankful that you are God and we are not. God, thank you for reminding us that sometimes we just need to stop and be still and remember who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So, my cord is pulling. Hold on. Oh, thank you. <laughs> sorry um, first of all thank you all for all the gifts and cards and um, messages and emails I got this month for pastor appreciation uh, that meant a lot to me thank you so much and I appreciate you you are wonderful you love me and my family well and I'm so grateful to be here with you so today we're going to look at our fifth and final directive the directive of Christian we are committed to historic Orthodox Christian faith as found in the Apostles' Creed. 
and we are committed to a generous orthodoxy under a banner of love and grace. As such, we commit ourselves to faithful reading and study of the Bible, finding new and creative ways to live out what it teaches. So for our sermon discussion this morning, I purposefully chose a translation of this particular passage that might ruffle a feather or two. I did it on purpose. So nobody stoned me, okay? All right? I'm reading it out of the New King James. That's an oldie but goodie, right? All right, 2 Timothy 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Y'all want me to stop right there? Any children in the room? Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, false accusers, incontinent. Okay. <laughs> uh, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, and from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with divers' lust, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these who also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they, also, but they shall proceed no further, for their follies shall be made manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus, shall suffer persecution. That line right there is worth a whole sermon. Can I get an amen? But we're not going to do that today. But remind me, we might need to do that in the future. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What a great scripture. So, let's talk about this directive, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break it down into three parts. I'm going to talk about generous orthodoxy first, then I'm going to talk about the Apostles' Creed uh, with Corey. We're going to talk about that together, and then we're going to talk about what does it mean uh, to be a faithful reader and student of the Bible. So, let's start with generous orthodoxy. What does it mean when we say generous orthodoxy? Well, I think, first of all, why don't we take a look at the person who first coined the term generous orthodoxy. His name was Hans Frey. 
uh, and he was a theologian and scholar, born in 1922. He was German. Uh, Brian McLaren was actually the one that kind of popularized this term in his book of the same name in 2004. Uh, but Hans Frey actually, it originated with him. Hans was born in 1922 to secularized Jewish parents. And we'll give you some background on this guy so maybe we can understand where he came from when he used the term generous orthodoxy. He was raised in America and went on to become a biblical theologian and scholar at Yale University, I'm sorry, Yale Divinity School in Princeton. He attended a Lutheran church as a child. Okay, so he's born Jewish. He attended a Lutheran, child as, Lutheran church as a child and through young adulthood. He followed the Quakers on and off his entire life. He pastored a Baptist church in 1945. He decided that he leaned more into Anglicanism and was in an Episcopal church while his children were young. And he wrestled with uncomfortableness in all of these denominations his whole life. I believe that all this background played a huge part in Frey's life and why he decided that generous orthodoxy was the way to be. In 1987, in a response to evangelical scholar Carl Henry, Frey writes, my own vision of what might be, sorry, I can't say that word, Prop mm, sorry, never mind, I'll come back to it. Just imagine it, okay? For our, what, but let me do it this way. My own vision of what might be beneficial for our day, split as we are, it was a fancier word than beneficial, by the way, but not so much into denominations as in two schools of thought, is that we need a kind of generous orthodoxy which would have in it an element of liberalism and an element of evangelism, evangelicalism or conservatism. I don't know if there's a voice between these two. As a matter of fact, if there is, I would like to pursue it. He wanted to find a way that liberals and conservatives in their theology could find a way to find common ground to work together for the good of the kingdom of God. That's hard. It's really hard. But he could see validity and wisdom in all different faith traditions. And he had an understanding of biblical hermeneutics from his, from his academic life to understand that not one faith tradition has it all correct. But there's good in all of them. And to honor that and res to respect it. And he also came to the conclusion that getting it all correct is really not the point. The point is that our, all of our faith traditions really should find some commonalities in one another, or at the very least, quit dehumanizing the other for their faith. Or shout heresy anytime someone interprets a biblical text different from us. Y'all remember the time when Rob Bell's book came out, Love Wins? When was that, about 12, 13 years ago, something like that? Yikes, it just exploded, and he was a heretic, and he was no longer a Christian, and was like, did you actually read the book? And that world was, that I was in at that time was a more conservative one. Nobody had actually read the book. I hadn't even read the book. 
Brian McLaren says, Orthodoxy could mean what God knows, some of which we believe a little, some of which they believe a little, and about which we all have a lot to learn. Now, orthodoxy or right thinking obviously varies from person to person depending on how we grew up, how we were taught uh, in our churches or if we were not in a church or just life. We, we all have right thinking about different things. There's so many options for right thinking or orthodoxy. For examples, was there a literal Adam and Eve? If I believe that, but you don't, does that make you a heretic in my mind? Or am I a heretic? If I believe that King David sexually assaulted Bathsheba, but you believe it was adultery, are we heretics to one another? Now, I do think that we should consider having a base level minimum of something that we can agree on to be in a community together. And with that base, that foundation, we can feel safety in this atmosphere to disagree on things. If we don't have that foundation together, we can still disagree. We love each other and, and see each other as the Imago Day, but it might be harder to be in community. But to have a foundation of an agreed-upon orthodoxy for our faith communities, that can be very important. And this is where we get to the Apostles' Creed. So I'm going to ask Corey to come up. Every one of you should have gotten one of these when you came in, a copy of the Apostles' Creed. If you did not get a copy, would you mind raising your hand so uh, Tammy and Pat can bring you one? Okay, now that everyone has one in front of them, would you read this together with me? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was... Sorry. He descended to the dead... The third day he arose from the, from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. How many of you grew up with the Apostles' Creed? A lot of you did. A lot of you did. I did not. So this is a little bit new. This is new for me. I actually, I do love it, but it's not something that I, I learned, as you could tell when I tried to recite it just now. It's obviously not innate for me. So I, I wanted Corey to come up here with me this morning and talk to all of us about the Apostles' Creed. Corey and Vicki were part of the founding of Imago, and they were part of that small group that kind of put things together. So I felt it would be beneficial to kind of hear it from, sorry, the horse's mouth. You know. So, Corey, why the Apostles' Creed? If the shoe fits, right? If the shoe fits. Yeah, I feel like you said everything that I was going to say probably better than I'll say it, but I'll say it again. Um, So, uh, most of us that were on, like, the original leadership team that launched the church came from some sort of church tradition where there was 
something like a 20-page statement of faith, doctrinal statement for the church, that if you wanted to be a member of the church, everybody had to agree to everything in it. And we just felt like in the spirit of generous orthodoxy that was really resonating with all of us, by the time you state that you're a uh, post-trib evangelical who believes in six-day literal creation and you shouldn't baptize infants, you should only baptize adults who, who, who can confess that they're believers and, um, and that the cross is specifically for penal substitutionary. By the time you, like, any, and change around what you believe about any of those things, by the time you list that many things off, you basically have just said that 99% of everybody who's ever been a Christian throughout history doesn't belong in your community. And that was not at all the inclusive environment that we wanted to, that we wanted to create. It didn't feel like uh, generous, generosity at all. I almost said generousness. <laughs> uh, didn't feel like generosity at all and probably didn't even really feel like orthodoxy to claim that we had it right. And so uh, we'd spent a lot of time talking about so uh, we do believe we're a Christian uh, organization that we're creating. Uh, we believe in Jesus and that he was a real person who really lived and that his life uh, has forever changed the world. And that's why we're, uh, that's why we're here is, uh, as a community is because of that. And so how do we ground ourselves in something, but still, like, what's that something that we can ground ourselves in that is the kind of the baseline, the, the, what's the fewest number of things that we have to agree on in order to be a community together that's uh, celebrating Jesus and trying to live lives that are, that are honoring to him. And so the Apostles' Creed is where we landed on. It's one of the oldest uh, Christian uh, documents, creeds, whatever, out there. Uh, and so it m makes a lot of sense. There's a couple creeds you could pick. We chose the shortest one because it had the fewest <laughs> number of things in it. And then you see how when you look at that sheet, there's asterisks on it. Like, even looking at the creed, we're like, we're not sure that we can, like, just pick any version of this and work. So, like, specifically, like, descended to the, to the dead. Like, it says, like, we believe that Jesus lived and died and uh, was a real person. Um, don't really want to get into specifically from right here uh, what your thoughts on hell are. So, um, that's, uh, that's for another, uh, another sermon, right? That's right. Not me, though. <laughs> Not it. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Thank you for that, Corey. <clears throat> Thank you. And let me just say, are you still welcome at Imago Day if you do not believe a word of this? Absolutely. Without equivocation. If there's parts of it that you do believe and others that you don't, it's still okay. There is a sign right outside this door that says, come as you are. We mean that. We mean it. You're not going to have to sign off on anything to be family with us. It just doesn't work that way. Now, the last one, the faithful reading and study of, study of the Bible. Marcus Borg says, I don't take the Bible literally, but seriously. There's a difference. I grew up, the majority of my life has been spent taking the Bible literally. But as you get older, there's some problems with that. But I was also in a faith community that those kind of questions and wanderings, yeah, they weren't welcome that much. It's black and white. It's right there. Accept it. So what does a faithful reading and study of the Bible mean? What, and while finding new and creative ways to live out what it teaches. Now, I wasn't here 13 years ago. 
But I can tell you what this part of the directive means to me, and I think it's what it means to the rest of all of us. 2 Timothy 6, 6 I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Again, I want to ask you to raise your hand. How many of you have heard the phrase or the term infallible and inerrant? A lot of us have. Inerrant meaning without error. And infallible meaning incapable of making an error or a mistake. Now, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say because this is crucial to this concept. This idea of inerrancy and infallibility only came around by the 18th century. It, it became a more pervasive idea in the church around the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. Why, did I, why do I want you to focus on that time frame? Because this was not an idea that was held by our church fathers. It was not an idea, and mothers, it was not an idea that the Bible even proclaims. The Bible doesn't say that it's without error. So by the late 20th century, this inerrancy and infallibility became this gold standard in the lexicon to be an evangelical or a conservative. But think about this. If I can make a claim of infallibility or inerrancy out of 2 Timothy 3.16, then as a woman... I cannot serve as your pastor. I can't preach. I shouldn't even be divorced, much less marry again. I have to submit my will to a man, through a husband or a pastor, etc. I am always to be submissive to whatever authority there is. I need to be wearing a head covering, no jewelry, no haircuts. My only options in the church are to sit still and listen and learn. I can't even sing in the choir or keep the nursery. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians we are told, I permit not a woman to teach or speak. I'm sorry, I permit not a woman to speak. How can I keep a nursery if I can't speak to babies? How can I teach the children if I can't speak to the little guys? How can I be in a choir if I can't sing? Just maybe there's something else going on with that text. In the late 19th and early 20th century, who was making these rules about the Bible being infallible and inerrant? It was men. The men weren't asking for females' opinions on this idea. If I am a man who already possesses all the power in society during this time, and I really like that power, oh boy, I can make that Bible say whatever I want it to. This idea of needing the Bible to be inerrant and infallible came from a real fear of higher biblical criticism that was coming about in the late 19th century. There were these new tools that we had at our disposal, coming mainly from German scholars, by the way, um, that were teaching us to look at the Bible a little bit differently, with a little bit more uh, looking into the context and the background of what was going on, rather than just the plain word on the page. The Bible was becoming more accessible. And making the idea of First Peter's edict, that we are all a royal priesthood, becoming a 
much more of a reality. But it also came from what was happening culturally. Societal, societal norms were changing rapidly. Women were fighting for the right to vote and getting it. A path to equality for all people was burgeoning. People on the margins were gaining access to these paths of this new way to interpret the Bible that had always been blocked by the men in power. We can't have that. So let's make a Bible that's infallible and inerrant so nobody can argue with me. You know people that say, don't argue with me or get mad at me. I didn't say it, God did. Have we all heard that? Or the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, right? But as Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, he tells them, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you. There's always a fresh way to interpret and think about the scriptures. Did the Bible really say those things? And did it just happen to say something that we already agree with? So it's convenient to believe it? Or is the Bible being misused and misinterpreted? As Peter N. says about theories of inerrancy, this view of the Bible does not come from the Bible, but from an anxiety over protecting the Bible. And this protecting of the Bible really only protects those who are not on the margins of life. We are all interpreters of the Bible. We have a lens of our own experiences, our culture, our bias, our family, our other teachers and pastors and so on. Even our most beloved pastors and teachers, they interpret with their own lens too. Now, allow me to just call out one. How many of you are listening to the podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Yeah. You remember Mark Driscoll from Seattle, the cussing pastor? I encourage you to listen to this podcast. It's fascinating. It's such a deep dive into how we get this toxic masculinity that comes from a pulpit and how harmful that can be. So Mark Driscoll, the cussing, the cussing pastor, this guy grew up mad all the time, just spoiling for a fight. He didn't grow up in a Christian home. So when you wronged him, he was ready to knock your lights out. And he did. He got into a lot of fights. He got into a lot of trouble. I even think he had some brushes with the law, didn't he? Do you remember, Libby? Okay, something like that. Something on those lines. He was just this guy, this fighting guy, this pugilistic guy. So when he becomes saved in his 20s, that kind of experience from his life spilled over into the way he interpreted the Bible the gospel, the Old Testament. And he became this kind of guy that said, you need to man up. Why aren't you leading your wife like you should? You should be leading this church. You should be leading this wife. And everything was a fight. Because that's what he knew. That was the lens he grew up with. So, of course, that's the pastor he became. Because he, he didn't have the opportunity or didn't choose to check that at some point. He, there's a very famous, you can look it up, a YouTube clip where he's preaching to the men in the church and he's, he's yelling at them for not being man enough. And so he wants them to lead and take charge of their lives and their family's life. And he screams at them from the pulpit, How dare you? Who the hell do you think you are? Abusing a woman? 
neglecting a woman, being a coward, a fool, being like your father Adam? Who do you think you are? There's truth in some of that. We shouldn't be abusing or neglecting women. We shouldn't be cowards. But we have to remember that some person would say that's cowardice and another person would say that's wisdom. But he was challenging the men in his church to rise up and be men and take the world for Christ like a lion. That's ripe for abuse. It's ripe. But it's also that lens that he saw the scriptures through. And you and I have that kind of lens too. I hope not one like Mark's. But we all have one. We all have one. We bring our hurts and our disgust and our doubts and our unhealed uh, tragedies and trials and trauma. We bring all of that into the text when we read it, when we hear it. I don't always get this right either. Uh, several, several years ago, probably in my 20s, I remember teaching on 2 Timothy 3. I remember teaching that this weak-willed women kind of thing was a thing. It was real. I look back on that in horror. There will be things that I've said here at Imago that I hope five or ten years from now I go, Ooh, that was not well thought out. That was, we are supposed to grow. We're supposed to evolve in our faith in Christ and how we see God, and how we see the Bible, and how we see church. And I just lost my page. I'm sorry. Give me just a second. I was all fired up. If we believe the same thing about God, Jesus, and the Bible that we did 10 years ago, there might be a problem. So one of the things I'm going to ask you to do is, as we leave this place here today is what do I still believe? There are some foundational things that we should believe. But there's some others that we might ought to think about a little bit harder. I was in my 30s before I realized that not every Christian saw the world ending the way the Left Behind novels did. I thought that's how we all thought about it until I met someone who didn't. Who is like that in your life? That's like, yeah, I don't see it that way. And do they feel safe enough to say that to us? I don't see it that way. Or they wouldn't say that to us because they know we're going to fight them. Of course, the Bible has some errors and it has some contradictions. You don't have to try very hard to see those. So what is a faithful reading and study of the Bible? We have to consider context. But the best way that I think we can study the Bible, what's been life-giving for me, is studying theologians and preachers and Sunday school teachers and my next-door neighbor, listening to their thoughts on what this passage might mean. Instead of reading the same people, reading Max Lucado books for the rest of my life, Max Lucado is great, but I need to, I need to branch out more. Who believes differently from me? I need to read those people. I need to be a part of those people. Those part, these people need to be a part of my life. Do I have a teacher, a Sunday school teacher, a preacher that, that, that says it different from me? I need to listen. I can, at the end of it, I can still disagree if I feel like I need to disagree. 
but I need my thought and my interpretation and my lens challenged. I need to be aware that anytime I read this scripture, I'm bringing my lens with me. Where is it today? What is it today? But mostly to have faith, to be a faithful student and reader of the Bible, we rely on Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and full of power, making it operative, energizing, and effective. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Penetrating as far as the division of the soul, the spirit, the completeness of a person, of both joints and marrow, the deepest parts of our nature, exposing and judging the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. What is the word of God? Maybe I should ask, who is the word of God? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus is the revealed word of God. Only Jesus is inerrant and infallible. We don't make an idol of the Bible by placing it, giving it higher authority than we do on Jesus. Only through the lens of Christ can we be faithful readers and students of the Bible. Only through Christ can we practice generous orthodoxy. Only through Christ can we practice these five directives well. Let's get to it. May we do that. Now we're going to have a short Q&A time for some folks. Good morning, Imago. Thanks for being here on Halloween. My son thought um, it was outrageous that we would be attending church on a holiday. <laughs> How dare we? <laughs> I'm Gina Ganshaw, and I've been at Imago since the very first Sunday. And I also serve on the formation team here and on the Genesis ministry team. And I'm going to let these ladies introduce themselves, too. My name is Vicki Brown, and um, I'm one of the founding members of the church, so I've been here for a long time. Uh, my name is also Gina, or Regina, either one's fine. Um, and I've been here about a year and a half. Our first service was the last service before everything shut down. <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us. Yes. <laughs> um, with this last directive, we're going to do the same thing that we've done with the previous four, and we just thought it would be great to get people's thoughts on what these directives mean to them and kind of how they see them played out here at Imago. So the first thing that we're going to ask you guys to share with us is what this directive means to you. You can go first, Gina. Um, okay, so for me, well, I grew up Lutheran, um, so I grew up memorizing the Apostles' Creed, um, but I had never heard of generous orthodoxy until I came here. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so I really love, deconstruction is hard. That's another thing I never heard of until I was here. 
Um, but it's very difficult, and once you start questioning things, it's very scary. So I really love that we still hold on to some of those traditions, um, the Apostles' Creed, um, communion. Um, that's really important to me because I've got that foundation. But I also love, I mean, growing up there were things I didn't agree with that I was taught. Um, when I was 19 and had my first son, the Lutheran church that I grew up in, uh, my whole family, generations of my family had gone to, they wouldn't baptize my son because he was born out of wedlock. And that just felt so wrong to me. And there's just been numerous examples, but it just how it was. And even though it didn't feel right, I didn't really push it. So here, I love that you can question those things and you can figure out those things. So th that's been really important. Well said. Yeah. How about you, Vicki? Um, I think that this directive, particularly for me, um, Christian, Christianity is where I met the ground of all being. It, um, it is a tradition I grew up in, but because of the way that I've been allowed to interact with Christianity in this community, I understand now that the ground of being is so much more than just being a Christian. And the perennial wisdom that spans time across all of the human race, Christianity is a part of that. And like I said, that's where I met the ground of being that I think everything stems from. So for Christian to be this place, for this place to be Christian and practicing generous orthodoxy, that would not have happened for me if it were not for a community that accepted me and led me to something that is bigger. I don't know if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you should. The very last book, they talk about going farther up and farther in. And to me, Christianity allows me to do that because it's no longer a narrow lens. Like we all start narrow and we should change and we should grow. That lens has been able to be enlarged because of this place. The, that lens has been able to be enlarged because it is a Christian lens, which might sound strange for it to be an enlarging thing because I think that sometimes Christians can be seen as very narrow I can tell you without a doubt that if you dive into Christianity as it spans history and time, it is not narrow because the God we serve is not small. Thanks, Vicki. I love that. And I love how Melinda highlighted that too. Um, you know, just that we're not remaining stagnant. It's good and okay to change and grow. So thanks for sharing that. Um, we also wanted your thoughts on how you have seen this directive lived out during your time at Imago Day at home in front of your computer during COVID. <laughs> um, so there's so many different examples that I could think of. Um, the first thing that pops into my head um, is the example of baptisms. Um, you can, you know, like I said, I grew, grew up, you baptize babies. And then the church I started going to when I was, you know, in my 20s, you were, you were an adult. Um, they didn't baptize babies. And so I love here that you can do either one. Like, whatever it is that you feel like God wants you to do, that's okay. And I love that. 
Um, the other example was we did a small group, um, and Vicki, you were in that group with me, and I remember you saying to me, I had asked a question, and you said to me, and I'm paraphrasing, but you had said, do you want to be told what the right answer is, or do you want to figure out what the right answer is? And thinking about it, I thought, I, I did initially want to be told what was right, because I was confused, and I thought, no, I want to figure out what's right for me. I have this personal relationship with God, and I do want to figure out what's right for me. And I can do that here. That's good. So much easier to be told. Yes. That's a lot less work. <laughs> Vicki, what are your thoughts on how you see this lived out here? Um, so when I was talking to Corey about this last night, a couple of things kind of came out of our conversation. I think that um, being a Christian church done... Um, in the way that we have tried to do it here, has allowed us to care for the marginalized in our community and across the world. So we go to Honduras, that's where my personal journey has taken me um, in caring for the marginalized. Like The Christian directive, being a Christian, living out what Jesus did, he sat with the marginalized of his day, and we get to do that here. That Christian directive has led us to sitting with people who are not like us, who do not have the resources that we have, and we get to come alongside them. You know, Christ isn't in this building. He is in us, and we are the hands and feet of Christ in the world, and I think that that has definitely been played out here at Imago Day um, in the ways that we can. Um, obviously, we've had so many, you know, things thrown in the road for that lately, um, but the passion to meet people where they're at, just like Jesus did, that comes from being a Christian community. Um, the other thing that I really appreciate about Imago Day and how we've tried to play this directive out um, is something I'm personally involved in as well as formation communities. And the reason that I say that is it's for people who want something more. It's that farther up and farther in. But I gotta tell you, we've had atheists and agnostics sit in that community too. That ground of being is for everybody. And as a Christian, I get to offer that to them and not judge them for where they are at or how they are in the world. Because my God is for them too. My God is big enough to hold that for them too. And that, those um, practices and the way that we talk about coming into community um, with each other and with the divine, oh my gosh, guys, it's beautiful to see how people change during that time. When they can sit in a place that fully accepts them wherever they're at, all they have to do is come with a sense of longing for more, that they know that there's more. They know that there's more than what the church has taught them in the past. I get to be a part of seeing their eyes open to that. And it is a beautiful, beautiful spirit-filled place that even if they don't call it the same thing I do, it is real. Okay, Gina, last question. <laughs> you know, we, we've seen a lot of change. I feel like even just in these last few years in Imago, and obviously we want to continue to change and evolve as we've talked about. So our last question is just, how do you hope to see this directive played out in the future at Imago? Um, it's kind of a hard question because I feel like Imago is doing a really good job of this. Um, but I know what, like one thing that is new um, with the children is this godly play that we're going to be starting. And I'm so excited to learn more about this. And um, just the thought that we're going to be helping 
the children to figure out, you know, um, what it is that these scriptures mean to them and um, through creative ways. And I think that's fantastic. And, you know, the children are the future. So I, I think that's just, I'm really excited about that. Me too. Yeah. I think it's super exciting. And if anybody is interested in learning more about that um, or even joining the team who's going to be helping to implement that, Holly Earlson, I know, would be happy to chat with you about that or Pastor Melinda. Um, Vicki, what about you? How do you hope this plays out in the future at Imago? So the other thing that came out of my conversation with Corey last night as we were talking about this is, is excitement for the future. If our God is infinite, then there are infinite ways to relate to him. And you all teach us every day, each other in this community, different ways of viewing and relating to God. That lens that Melinda talked about, you inform my lens. And I need that, and you need that. We need each other. And so that idea of us being able to affect the marginalized, to bring them hope and justice and peace, to bring the image of God to other people, to let them know that they have the image of God inside of them. So many people for so long have been told that they're not worthy or that they're unlovable, and it's not true. And so for us to be able as a community to bring that to other people, I want that desperately. Not just for them, for me too. It's a selfish reason. Like I need people to remind me that I'm lovable too. And because I'm not hearing a voice of God in my ear, I hear it from other people. And so when I think about how the Christian directive plays out in the future, it is so that those infinite ways of being with God as embodied in every person, we get the opportunity to continue to interact with the divine in a way that we haven't before. And that's my hope for the church, that we bring more and more of that to the people who are here and the people who we get to interact with every day. Okay. Thank you guys so much for being willing to share today. And I guess I would just encourage if anyone has questions about what Pastor Melinda talked about today or what these ladies talked about up here, please reach out to Pastor Melinda or anyone on the formation team or the leadership team or just somebody else that you see sitting in the pews because I know that those are great conversations always to be had. Uh, so please don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks, guys.